Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Not that long ago, if you wanted to make an album, you needed to rent a big, expensive recording studio. In addition to paying an hourly, daily, weekly, or monthly rate, you needed to pay for a producer, an engineer or two, all the recording tape you used, and any catering that was required. It could get very expensive very quickly. But that was okay, because back then, the music industry was awash in money. Your label would happily advance you the money to cover your recording costs, because they were just going to take it out of the profits derived from the future sales of that album. Because there was so much money to be made, a lot of big, expensive recording studios were built. Some were in big centers like New York or Los Angeles and London. Others were chateaus out in the countryside or maybe even on an exotic island. Even a medium-sized city could boast half a dozen solid studios. These days, though, it's possible to make a very good-sounding album on a laptop in your bedroom. Heck, I know of some people who have made credible-sounding records on their smartphones. But this doesn't mean that big-time recording studios are now irrelevant. There are some things, some sounds, and some needs that require a dedicated recording studio environment. But then there are those facilities that have been forced to shut down killed by the massive changes to the music industry and the high cost of maintaining a studio when bookings are down. Still, there's something really, really cool about recording studios, places where legendary songs and iconic albums were created. And I'd like to take you on a tour of some of these studios and listen to some of the music that was made within those walls. Some of these places are still with us, while some are only memories. Legendary recording studios, past and present. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I love recording studios. I'm talking about the big, purpose-built places where you can set up for weeks at a time to create music. I once had ambitions of being a recording engineer, working in a dimly lit air-conditioned control room surrounded by gear and the faint smell of ozone from the electronics in the air experimenting with microphones and mic placement, messing around with outboard equipment in an effort to find sounds that no human ear had ever heard before. I even took a course in recording engineering in night school. I read up on producers like George Martin and Alan Parsons and Roy Thomas Baker and Martin Hannett and Chris Thomas and Tony Visconti and Gus Dudgeon and Bob Ezrin. I pored over liner notes on albums to see where the record was made and if I could pick out sonic artifacts from specific studios. But then two things intervened. There was a career in radio and the fact that I, well, wasn't a very good musician. I could play the drums pretty well, but when it came to guitars and keyboards and everything else, I was absolutely hopeless. So how can you be a producer, an engineer, if you can't speak the language of music? So I, I washed out. But anytime I get a chance to be in a recording studio environment, I take it. I just love the vibe of these places. So with all that in mind... I thought we'd take a tour of some legendary studios. Not all of them are still with us, but the music that was made at these places is. Canada has, and still is, home to some great facilities, thanks to the government's Canadian content policy. Before 1971, there really wasn't any kind of music industry in Canada. But when it became a rule that 30% of the music on the radio had to be of Canadian in origin, this spurred the creation of an infrastructure to support that policy. It led to jobs as managers and promoters and venue operators. It fostered the creation of record labels. 
And if you're going to have record labels, you need studios in which to make records. There have been dozens and dozens of great studios in Canada over the decades. We could do a top 10 studios in just this country. But we're going to start our studio tour in the Gastown area of Vancouver. This is an interesting brown building. It's the oldest brick building in the entire city. It was built, yes, as a warehouse, a grocery warehouse in 1886. It was then used as Vancouver City Hall. And then after that, it reverted to being a warehouse again for a company that made glass. After a while, though, the place fell into disuse and suffered a couple of fires. But then in 1991, Brian Adams bought the building, which was almost completely burned out, and restored it at great expense. The Warehouse Studios Complex now contains three studios, all containing state-of-the-art gear. Studio One has a 72-channel mixing console. Then there's the open-air courtyard, which has a small putting green. Very important. Warehouse Studios has been very popular with some big names from all over the world. The Offspring, Slayer, Tragically Hip, Three Days Grace, Metallica, ACDC, REM, Matthew Good, Nickelback. And it was the spot where Muse came to make their Drones album. Muse with Dead Inside from their 2015 album Drones, recorded entirely at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver. The next studio I want to talk about is Metalworks, which is in a nondescript industrial plaza in Mississauga, west of Toronto. It first went online in 1978 when the band Triumph didn't want the time pressures of recording in someone else's studio. And over the years, the complex got bigger and bigger and bigger. There are now four state-of-the-art rooms for recording one for mastering, and another dedicated to just video editing. Studio One is the most interesting to me. It has a vintage recording console and a live room that's about 1,200 square feet. It has a very high ceiling, a solid maple floor, and walls made out of stone and wood. The sonic properties of that room result in recordings that you just cannot get in a bedroom with a laptop. Over the decades, Metalwork has been hired out by Prince, Guns N' Roses, David Bowie, Drake, Katy Perry, Rush, and dozens more. And it's the go-to place for a lot of Canadian acts. Our Lady Peace, Some 41, Bare Naked Ladies, Billy Talent, and Alexis on Fire. Alexis on Fire with Boiled Frogs from their 2006 album Crisis. And they recorded a big chunk of that record at Metalworks in Mississauga. Here's something important to note. A facility like Metalworks can afford to stay in business because it's now more than just a recording studio. Since 2004, it's been a trade school, teaching everything from recording engineering to sound reinforcement to music industry law. And a lot of studios are doing that, subsidizing the recording business by teaching. Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver, a place favored by Metallica, ACDC, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, and Aerosmith, couldn't make it after a while and eventually evolved into the Nimbus School of Recording and Media and is run by Garth Richardson, son of the famous Canadian producer Jack Richardson, and is co-owned by Bob Ezrin, the famous Canadian producer of Pink Floyd's The Wall and a ton of Kiss records. The second location of Windmill Lane in Dublin, once associated with U2, is now run by Pulse College, where students learn about music production, film music, and video game music. 
Even the venerable Abbey Road went in that direction, but we'll get to that. Some studios cannot make it under any circumstances. Back in the day, Le Studio in Moran Heights, Quebec was very popular. It was a purpose-built facility, built in 1974. Designers Andre Perry and Yale Brandeis wanted it to be really different. A country retreat where the beauty of the natural surroundings would be an inspiration to all. This is why the studio had big floor-to-ceiling glass windows. Not the greatest acoustic decision, but it did add to the vibe. Le Studio was fantastically successful. Artists cocooned themselves for as long as they needed to finish their projects. Rush, the police, Sting, the Bee Gees, Bowie, Brian Adams, they were all clients. Andre Perry and Yale Brandeis sold the facility in 1988, and after that it was, frankly, never the same. The studio sat closed, unheated, unpowered, and abandoned for years. It was put up for sale in 2008, but with no takers, the place deteriorated into a wrecked hulk. In 2015, it was put up for sale again, but this time by the town of Moran Heights for unpaid property taxes. For a brief period, anybody could have taken it for $18,000. A Quebec drummer named Richard Baxter launched a crowdfunding campaign with the goal of buying the studio and restoring it. But then the current owner stepped up and paid off all the taxes, meaning we're right back to where we've been for all these years. A dilapidated studio, stripped of all its gear, slowly being reclaimed by nature. But let's go back to when Le Studio was still in operation. In 1997, the Tea Party decamped to Moran Heights to record their fourth album, Transmission. The Tea Party, clients of the former Le Studio in Moran Heights, Quebec. Let's move to Grant Avenue Studios. It's in the east end of Hamilton in a house that was built in 1917. When two Hamilton brothers, Daniel and Bob Lanois, decided to move the recording business out of their mother's basement, they were set up in the laundry room, they moved into the house. That's where their client base increased exponentially. A lot of Canadian acts came through the place. Martha and the Muffins, the Parachute Club, Bruce Coburn. The studio also attracted international attention. Rick James, the Talking Heads, they were both clients. And this is how Brian Eno came to work in Hamilton, where he met Daniel Lanois. Lanois was working with a band called Time Twins and was introduced to Eno. The two began working together on a variety of small-time projects. Then Eno spirited Lanois away to work with U2 on the Unforgettable Fire album. When that happened, a guy named Bob Deutsch took over the studio and runs it to this day. Grant Avenue is a terrific facility that's been used by Collective Soul, Finger Eleven, Theory of a Dead Man, and countless others. And one of the things clients love about this place is the selection of microphones. They have some very rare and very sweet-sounding mics that date back more than 70 years. Here's a song produced by Daniel Lanois at Grant Avenue Studios from Martha and the Muffins in 1981. We're afraid to call it love Let's call it swimming We're afraid to call it love Let's call it swimming We're afraid to call it love Martha and the Muffins, one of the many great songs recorded at Grant Avenue Studios in Hamilton. Next, we're headed to California for a visit to a studio so legendary that Dave Grohl made a movie about it. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. 
Our next stop on our tour of recording studios is in Van Nuys, California, in a place called Sound City. It was built by the Skeeter family in 1969 during a frenzy of studio building that took place to satisfy the demands of rock and roll. And the first guy to use the place was Neil Young for his After the Gold Rush album. This is where Fleetwood Mac recorded Rumors. The first Rage Against the Machine album was done here. Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes, Metallica, Johnny Cash, REO Speedwagon, Nine Inch Nails, Grateful Dead, Weezer, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Tool, Blind Melon, Slipknot, Queens of the Stone Age, they and dozens more used the studio. Why? Well, a lot of it had to do with the vintage analog gear. There was a warmth to the studio that artists really, really loved. But like a lot of studios from that era, it has since closed down. You can blame the economy. You can blame it on the state of the music industry. You can blame it on the tremendous expense of upkeep maintenance and keeping up with technology. The last bands to record at Sound City were the Arctic Monkeys for their Second and Sea album, and Everclear's Return to Santa Monica. The place was stripped of gear, and it was shut down for good. But Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters would not let it go. He bought one of Sound City's mixing consoles and moved it to his private home studio. And then he felt something had to be done to preserve the memory of this piece of rock and roll infrastructure. So he directed a documentary called Sound City, which he says is a film about America's greatest unsung recording studio, deep in California's sunburnt San Fernando Valley, tucked away behind the tracks and dilapidated warehouses. It was the birthplace of legend. It was home to a special few intent on preserving an ideal. And Dave Grohl went on to interview maybe 200 people about Sound City. So why is he so big on making sure that everybody remembers Sound City? Well, might be because this album was recorded there. Nirvana and Come As You Are from Nevermind, recorded at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California. It's been closed since May of 2011, but has been remembered in Dave Grohl's documentary about the place. And it lives on in a more concrete location, too. A lot of the gear from Sound City, including its famous mixing console, was purchased by Dave Grohl and is now installed at 606 Studios, the Foo Fighters recording fortress in Northridge, California. All right, time to go to New York, about uh, 53rd and 10th. This was home to the Power Station, and it came by that name honestly. It was built in an old consolidated Edison power plant before it was converted into a TV studio where they filmed Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall for years. In 1977, the building was bought and rebuilt as a recording studio by Tony Bongiovi, the second cousin of some New Jersey kid named John Bongiovi. It was renamed the Power Station, and this place quickly gained a reputation as one of the greatest recording studios in the world. Tony got into the recording game when he was just 17. He got a gig at Motown Studios in Detroit, and he later moved back east to work at Media Sound in New York. That's when he realized that things were changing fast when it came to capturing music on tape. Technology was moving fast, and so were tastes in what sounded good. Now, let me explain. Up until the middle 70s, most recording studios were constructed so that they were as quiet as possible. A dead-sounding studio was a good studio. Conventional wisdom was that this allowed for the most precise control possible over recording the sound. There'd be no outside influences whatsoever. Bon Jovi started interviewing musicians he worked with. What were their favorite studios? Why were they their favorites? 
Which studios did they hate? What was wrong with them? The next step was to visit some of the rooms that musicians told him sounded great. What was it about these spaces that brought out the best performances? What he found was that musicians hated the conventional wisdom of dead studios. Without getting too complicated, it came down to reverb. When you play in a dead room, the sound goes out and never returns. You don't hear the music coming back at you. You can't hear that part of your performance delayed by a couple of milliseconds. And the unconscious tendency is to overplay whatever it is you're doing to compensate, and that can lead to frustratingly subpar performances. Tony Bon Jovi built the power station as a reverberation time-based studio. The room where the musician set up was built so that there was a deliberate slight reverb, about three quarters of a second, which, by the way, was the same decay time as the original Motown studios in Detroit. Building such a place was difficult, but it was done. And immediately people began booking the power station because records made there sounded live and full of energy. The biggest difference between the power station and just about everywhere else was how drums sounded. They sounded big, they sounded powerful, and they boomed. Listen. The Power Station, the band, recording at The Power Station, the studio. They loved that place so much that they named their group after the studio. And you see what I mean about the sound of the drums? Yes, there was some additional studio trickery used on Tony Thompson's kit. Devices called noise gates were used, but you could not get that kind of sound without the drums being played in a room without those special ambient acoustics. The Power Station, the studio, Their approach was so popular that it changed the way many rock recordings were made for years. Instead of doing something called close miking, which means placing microphones very close to the drum heads in order to capture a tight, dry sound, studios, engineers, and producers, and artists began to demand bigger drum sounds. And the only way you can get a big drum sound is in a big room with a specific type of natural room reverb. Now, you can simulate those effects electronically, but you can't simulate the kind of performance that you get out of the musician playing and reacting to those live acoustics in real time. See what I mean about not being able to make certain types of records in bedrooms? The power station still exists, although it's not called that anymore. The name of the facility is Avatar Studios, and it is still quite amazing. Now we're off to rural France for a place known as Chateau de Hereville. Back in the day, this place was amazing. It was an honest-to-God French chateau that was built in 1740 on the remains of an earlier building that dated back to sometime in the mid-16th century. Two wings, 30 rooms, a swimming pool, a tennis court, a series of outbuildings, and all set on 42,000 acres of parkland. They called it France's Abbey Road. In the 60s, it was bought by a composer named Michel Manga, who turned the whole place into a recording studio. He turned one wing into one of the first residential recording studios in the world. Not only could you live and work at the studio, Manga was also a very interesting host. There were lots of parties, plenty of booze, many drugs, and not infrequent sex parties. Musicians began flocking to the chateau. I mean, (laughs) wouldn't you? 
The Grateful Dead not only recorded there, but played a show on its grounds. In 1972, Elton John named an album after the place, the first of three albums he recorded there. Pink Floyd, T-Rex, David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, they all recorded at the Chateau, and so did Iggy Pop. He was there with Bowie to record his 1977 album, The Idiot. And this is one of the songs that was born there. And it's a song that was a hit for Bowie six years later. Iggy Pop's China Girl, recorded at the Chateau d'Eroville outside of Paris. Sadly, the place ran into legal problems in the mid-80s, and owner Michel Magnet committed suicide. The buildings were once again abandoned, and the place began to fall apart. Fortunately, though, it was a protected site. Developers wanted the land, but the law kept them out. In 2013, the Chateau was put up for sale for about $2 million, a lot considering that it needed about half a million dollars in repairs just to make it livable. Happily, though, it has been purchased by four music fans and is being reborn as a center for the arts. Back in the day, though, the chateau was said to be haunted. People staying there reported weird apparitions and touches on the shoulder when no one was there. It'll be interesting to see if the ghosts contact the new clients. I have two more studios I want to visit. One is in the Caribbean, which was wrecked by a hurricane, and the other is the most famous recording studio in the world. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is a tour of some of the great recording studios past and present, and I'm afraid this next story is a sad one. While he was working with the Beatles, producer George Martin resigned as an employee of EMI Records and created a company called Associated Independent Recording, or AIR, A-I-R. From then on, anyone, including the Beatles, who wanted him to produce their records, hired him through Air. After the Beatles broke up, Martin opened up the first Air studio on Oxford Street in London. When that started doing well, he did what was fashionable at the time, construct a state-of-the-art residential facility where musicians could work and play for as long as they liked. By this time, George and his wife were very fond of the Caribbean island of Montserrat. Why not build their dream studio there? So, in the mid-70s, they did. Artists would fly into neighboring Antigua and then take a small plane or boat over to Montserrat. Beginning in about 1979, the studio was always booked. Rush, Elton John, Supertramp, The Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, Duran Duran, Black Sabbath, Paul McCartney, Dire Straits. They all went to Air Studios Montserrat. This included albums like Brothers in Arms, Ghosts in the Machine, and Synchronicity. It was a gorgeous place with the best gear, a big swimming pool, and a deck featuring a view of the surrounding mountains and the Soufriere volcano off in the distance. And it wasn't just the studio. Artists loved it because it was so isolated. They could mingle with the locals, soak up the atmosphere, and be inspired in ways they couldn't possibly be anywhere else. But after 10 good years, disaster struck. Well, Two disasters, actually. First, record labels didn't like the fact that their artists were so far away, working in places where they couldn't easily check up on them. They were loath to write big checks to cover the cost of working at such a place, even though they would still recoup their costs out of future sales. But the bigger disaster was Hurricane Hugo. This was a big one, a Category 5, that sat over the northeastern Caribbean for a couple of days, almost right on top of Montserrat. Out of the 12,000 people who lived on the island, 11,000 were left homeless. 
The coastline was battered by six-meter storm surges. There were mudslides, and flooding caused basic utilities to be out for weeks. 21 people were killed on the island, and the total damage was estimated at 200 million, which is a lot for an island with a GDP of about 40 million. Air Studios did not survive. The buildings were still standing, but from the moments after Hurricane Hugo struck, there was nothing salvageable. The only thing that survives is the music that was made there. The police from their 1983 album Synchronicity recorded in Sir George Martin's Air Studios in Montserrat, which has been turned into modern ruins thanks to Hurricane Hugo in 1989. Okay, that's that's depressing. So let's finish by visiting the most famous recording studio in the world, Abbey Road Studios in the St. John's Wood area of London. When it first opened in November 1931, it was known as EMI Studios. It was used for recording orchestras, film work, light popular music, and jazz. Rock, of course, didn't come into the picture until the 1960s. In the old days, producers and engineers were expected to wear shirts with collars and ties. Didn't matter if you were working on a rock project, a tie was mandatory. Management insisted on a strict working hour schedule, too. A bell still goes off in the building at 9 a.m. to herald the start of the workday. It stayed with the name EMI Studios until 1970, when the Beatles their most famous clients, released an album called Abbey Road. The publicity was too great to ignore, so they changed the name. Now, if you look at the front cover of that album, you can see the entrance to the studio just above Paul McCartney's head. That gate in front of the studio and that crosswalk are still there, and people come from all over the world to stop traffic and to write graffiti on the wall that runs along the sidewalk in front of the building. When it gets crazy and all crowded, it's given a new coat of whitewash, and the graffiti starts all over again. There were three studios at Abbey Road. Studio One is huge. It's like a gigantic gymnasium, two, two and a half stories tall. It's used for symphonic work and film scores. One of the times I was there, a 65-piece orchestra was putting the finishing touches on the soundtrack to the final Harry Potter film. It's the same room where John Williams did the score for Star Wars. Studio Two is also quite big, probably the size of a basketball court, and again, the ceiling is two stories tall. The control room is on the second floor and looks down into the space where everything gets set up. This is the most famous of studios. The Beatles did all their work here. Pink Floyd, Oasis, Muse, Elbow, Iron Maiden, The Killers, The Hollies, Radiohead, U2. Studio 3 is on the main floor, not too far from reception. Compared to Studios 1 and 2, it's quite small and intimate, only one story tall. Then there's the studio up on the third floor called the Penthouse. It's used for mixing and mastering recordings, which means that there's no place for anybody to set up and record, but that's not what the place is for. There was real concern about the fate of Abbey Road in 2010 when EMI ran into financial difficulties and the place was put up for sale. What would happen to Abbey Road, the most famous recording studio in the world? One report said that property developers were looking to turn the place into luxury condos. A Save Abbey Road campaign was launched, And in the end, EMI kept it. And now that it's part of Universal, I suppose that it's Universal's property now. Meanwhile, the British government has declared Abbey Road to be a Grade 2 listed building, which means it's a building of special architectural or historical interest. This means that if anybody wants to mess with the place, they need special permission. And even then, 
there can't be any major structural changes. So the future of Abbey Road is safe for now. And if it were to be put up for sale, people like Paul McCartney and Andrew Lloyd Webber have said that they'd be up for buying it. I've been lucky enough to have two private tours of Abbey Road. Their microphone collection dates all the way back to when they opened in the 1930s. And when I looked at one ancient microphone in Studio 2, the woman showing me around said, you know, if you analyze that one for DNA, you'd find a bunch of John Lennon in there. The place is littered with gear and instruments that go back decades. When I asked about an old piano that was just shoved up against the wall, my guide said, oh, that, that thing, uh, that was one of the pianos used for the final chord on the Beatles, A Day in the Life. They used four or five of them for that chord. The rest of them are, uh, they're around here somewhere. On my first tour, I was allowed to tiptoe through Studio 3, where Florence and the Machine were set up recording what would become the Ceremonials album. Don't touch anything, I was told. But I did. Don't think I heard anything. Shake It Out from Florence and the Machine, recorded in Studio 3 at Abbey Road in London. Oh, I want to mention something else. Remember how I said that the studio was getting into the education business? Its official name is Abbey Road Institute. I quote from Luca Barassi, the person heading up the project. Synonymous with excellence in recorded music for more than 80 years, Abbey Road's continued success is largely due to its staff and their knowledge. Now we will be able to share some of this expertise in a course which will provide first-class vocational training for people interested in forging a career in the music industry. Now this could be very, very lucrative for Abbey Road. I mean, Metalworks attracts students from all over the world, and tuition ain't cheap. How much would someone be willing to pay to be schooled in the same building where the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Oasis, Muse, and countless others have worked? You know, if, if this had been available to me... When I was dying to become a recording engineer, I might have sold several internal organs and a limb or two just for a chance to work there. Pro recording studios have been in crisis since the beginning of the millennium. Not only are they expensive to maintain, plus all the gear needs to be upgraded on a regular basis as technology advances and clients demand ever more sophisticated equipment, but recording budgets are nowhere near what they used to be. Advances in tech have allowed musicians to record professional sounding records at home. One studio guy told me, unless you need a room to record a specific live drum sound, or unless you're doing a movie score that requires a large orchestra, people are opting not to use big studios. And yes, there is something about the vibe of a professional recording studio that can be very inspirational, but if you can't afford it, you can't experience it. And the big studios cannot afford to sit empty, and that's why so many of them have gone the educational route. It's either that or closed down, like Sound City in L.A., Olympic in London, and some of the other great spots in New York City. Hey, if Abbey Road is doing it, that'll tell you something. But recording studios will always remain cool places, and the history that goes with them can be amazing. I can't imagine the world of music without them. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. I've already scheduled another tour of recording studios for a future program because we need to talk about Olympic Studios in London, there's Compass Point in the Bahamas, uh, Josh Homme's Pink Duck Studios in Burbank, the Foo Fighters 606 in North Los Angeles. 
There's Ocean Way in LA, Reciprocal in Seattle, Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, Columbia Studios, Atlantic Studios, both of them in New York. Uh, we will get to them, I promise. Meanwhile, let's connect at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. That's where you can email me any questions, comments, or complaints. I've got the newsletter, which will be in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every single weekday. That is free. Just got to sign up for it. And we can also communicate through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. All the addresses can be found at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Ellen Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 